in the year 302, the Roman Emperor Diocletian had a big problem. He hated Christians, but he had been unable to stamp Christians out of his army and his personal household. So he went to consult an oracle who claimed to speak for Apollo. And this oracle told Diocletian that the will of Apollo was for the Christians to be removed from the earth. And so Diocletian issued an edict. Church buildings were to be destroyed. All copies of the Christian scriptures were to burn. Everyone would offer sacrifices to the Roman gods or they would die. And thus began an eight-year period of intense persecution across the Roman Empire. Many Christians avoided detection, but many were found out. And they were given a choice. Uh, suffer torture for your faith or capitulate, renounce Christ. Many refused to dishonor Jesus and they died. And if you read the accounts, some of the torture scenes that uh, are described by the early Christians are just horrific. I won't, I won't mention them here because there are, are little ones present. But some people who claimed to be Christians capitulated, thinking that if they went along with this, they could save themselves. So they worshipped the Roman gods. They handed the scriptures over to be burned. And these people came to be known as the traditores, a Latin word meaning one who hands over. And this is the origin of our English word traitor today. And I begin with this this morning because today we're going to continue to look at Jesus' second discourse in the Gospel of Matthew. And in our last sermon covering this same passage, we saw that Jesus warned us persecution is a part of being a Christian. And today Jesus is going to tell us how we should respond when persecution does arise against us, when we do face opposition. And we're going to see that Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that we must not betray him like the traditories of old. Instead, we must endure in our faith to the end. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 through chapter 11, verse 1. And today we're going to see four points. First, we're going to see that because of the real threat of danger, we must adopt certain mindsets. Second, we're going to see how we should respond when danger, in fact, arises. Third, we're going to see who we should fear when times of danger come. And then fourth, we're going to see what priorities we need to adopt to see us through times of danger. So let's start with our first point. We must adopt certain mindsets because of the reality that there is danger out there. Jesus is about to send his disciples out on their first missionary journey. He's decided the best way to reach all of the desperate Jews of Galilee is by expanding the number of gospel workers in the field. So the 12 are going to go out on their own. And they are to go out proclaiming the same message that Jesus has been proclaiming and performing the same authenticating miracles that Jesus has been performing. And Jesus tells them as they do this, they will encounter two types of responses. First, he says, they will encounter people who rightly respond to their message. People that Jesus calls worthy in chapter 10, verse 11. And Jesus describes the sort of response that these worthy folks will give to the disciples in the final verses of our chapter. If you have a Bible, look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 40. And Jesus says, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me, that is the Father. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says to the 12, some people are going to hear you and they're going to believe what you're saying. They're going to want to be associated with you and they're going to help you. People will see the disciples as being righteous, as representing someone really important like a prophet of old. And these folks, because of their faith, will tend to the disciples' physical needs. And by so doing, Jesus says, it will be like they have done it for me or even for the Father. And there will be eternal reward for these people whose good works 
are performed and they are evidence that there's faith in those folks. But there's a second response. The disciples will also encounter unworthy people who will reject their message and who will persecute them. And in the rest of our chapter, Jesus is going to tell the twelve how they must respond to this opposition. And here Jesus is not just preparing them for the journey they're about to take. He's really preparing them for the rest of their lives. Because this will be the disciples' first mission trip. It won't be their last. And they're going to face hardship and opposition for the rest of their lives. So Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus says to the disciples, you are embarking on a dangerous journey because to represent Jesus and to proclaim Jesus is to court danger. And in our last sermon, we saw that Jesus talked a lot about the dangers that his disciples would face. There would be dangers from politicians and governments. There would be dangers from corrupt religious leaders. Tragically, there would be dangers even from those people who were closest to Jesus' disciples, from within their own families. And Jesus says they'll become your enemies because of your proclamation of the gospel. In fact, in verse 22, Jesus says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Believing friends, we must know that opposition is everywhere and it is inescapable. Because as verses 24 and 25 say, the world hates Jesus. And if you're Jesus' followers, you can expect to be maligned just like he was. And given all of that, because of all of this danger, because there are wolves out there, Jesus now says there are three attitudes we must adopt. First, he says, we must be wise. The Greek word here means something like having cunning. And Jesus explains this cunning by talking about snakes. Now, in the ancient world, people thought about snakes as being sly creatures. And if you know your Bible, you know exactly why that is, right? Because in Genesis 3, a serpent tempted Adam and Eve into falling into sin, right? And Jesus here says, have cunning like serpents. That might shock us. Especially because Revelation 12 indicates the serpent in the garden was some sort of a manifestation of Satan. Why in the world... Should the blood-bought people of God who are called to holiness have cunning in any way comparable to that? And the answer is this, friends. Gullibility is not a Christian virtue. We need to know there are people out there who are up to no good and who want to harm us, either by openly persecuting us or by inducing us to sin or by subtly manipulating and exploiting us. We need to be aware of the existence of and the agendas of dangerous people. And friends, I say this as someone for who, who for many years of my early Christian life was extremely gullible and naive. I thought Jesus wanted me to assume the best about everybody, especially people I met in church. I was quick to check my brain at the door and just adopt an uncritical approach about things around me. And when I saw red flags in someone or things that seemed to be off, I would dismiss them and I would think, well, I know him. It looks bad, but he can't really be doing that. But see, I was wrong, friends. Because following Jesus doesn't mean we should embrace gullibility. It doesn't mean we should turn our brains off. Instead, following Jesus means we should turn our brains on. We need to be more vigilant, not less. Because there are wolves out there. And Satan is working through them, through elites, through unbelieving family members, through false brothers and sisters that Satan scatters throughout churches, right? To attack and destroy the people of God. 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says he does not want to be outwitted by Satan. He says, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Evil and danger don't usually present themselves to us in an obvious way, right? Satan is crafty. He has schemes. And we must not be ignorant of those schemes. We've got to be wise to his methods. We've got to be wise like a serpent. To be able to discern when something is dangerous or wrong. To anticipate when things could develop in a bad way. So friends, be wise. But second, Jesus says, be innocent. Just because we need to be aware of evil and how it works does not mean we should take advantage of that knowledge and walk in evil. Just because you're aware of Satan's schemes doesn't mean you should act like Satan, right? Instead, Jesus says, be innocent as a dove. 
And doves were symbolic of harmlessness in the ancient world. And that's how we are to be friends. We're to be harmless. We're not to exploit other people to get ahead. If we act like that, then the world has good reason to hate us. No, friends, we are to do good to everyone that we encounter. Even back in chapter 5 of this book, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we must have an awareness of the evil ways of this world, but we are never to walk in worldliness or evil. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And that's the idea here. Be innocent. But third, Jesus says here, beware of men. Again, friends, there are people who want to harm us, to betray us, to exploit us, to destroy us. So we've got to be wary. We've got to think carefully about who we entrust ourselves to. See, there's, there's a reason we don't just admit everyone into church membership. There's a reason why we have a questionnaire and an elder interview and a congregational vote. And it isn't because we like practicing empty formalities. It's because we need to be on our guard. There's a reason that there is a four-week period of notice and comment before we install a new elder, because we've got to be careful about who we entrust ourselves to. And friends, this isn't just something that we should practice corporately. Friends, be careful who you trust. Jesus is saying in these verses, the disciples will encounter people who will betray them, who will rat them out to the state and have them arrested and put on trial. And friends, we will encounter duplicitous people who are like Shakespeare's Richard III, who boasted, I can smile and murder whilst I smile and wet my cheeks with artificial tears and frame my face for all occasions. Friends, there are people like that everywhere. And tragically, they're often found in churches. I thought long and hard about whether I should tell this story, but I think it's useful for you to hear it. A few years ago, there was a man who had been a member of this church and who was very well respected by many of our members. And eventually he left because we would not put him into leadership. And about a year after he left, he came back to the board of elders and he said, I've got a way for you to get a permanent church building. And we were like, well, cool, how should we do that? And he said, well, what I'd like you to do is you should bring your church into the church I'm currently attending, and then I'll help you execute a coup, and you can get rid of those pesky church leaders at my current church, and you can take over. Now, obviously, we were appalled, and we rebuked this man. Not just because his plan was sinful towards his current church, but because he thought we were gullible. He thought he could use us to leverage himself into a position of power in his church he couldn't otherwise access. And friends, I could tell you a lot of stories. There are people out there, especially in churches, who think they can take advantage because they expect the people of God to be gullible. And so friends, I tell you this because you must be wary. Don't just entrust yourself to anybody. Don't assume that people mean you no harm because they seem nice. Don't just do what anybody says unthinkingly. Learn to spot evil, but never walk in evil. And as we do that, we can protect ourselves against some dangers in this world. Come now to our second point. How should we respond when danger arises? Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Here Jesus focuses on just one particular type of danger institutionalized governmental persecution when worshiping Jesus becomes a criminal act. And the time that we've seen, like we just talked about a few minutes ago in ancient Rome, or the pattern that's been repeated throughout history, when Christians are hunted and arrested and tried and executed for their faith. 
And Jesus says, if we face this kind of persecution, there are three principles we need to know. First, Jesus says in verse 23, if we should face this kind of persecution, ordinarily the right response is to flee. Now, you might be surprised by that. You might think, well, I thought Jesus would want me to stand firm in place and suffer if need be. Or we might think, well, Jesus, I would expect him to command the Christians to assemble and to fight back against persecutors. But no, that's not what Jesus says at all. His command is quite clear. If you can flee, do so. And I think his reasoning is pretty clear if we consider the larger context of chapter 10. Jesus said back at the end of chapter 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There's a lot of ministry work to be done and very few people to do it. And so the disciples were to do what they could to stay in the game as long as possible and not just get themselves killed at the first opportunity. And besides that, Jesus already told the disciples, don't spend a bunch of time in a place that isn't interested in the gospel. Instead, separate yourself from them and move on because there are other places that need to hear the message. So for the sake of the mission, Jesus says, if you encounter persecution, flee. And friends, this guidance was not just followed by the 12. It was followed by other people in the New Testament. So the early church, like Acts chapter 9, when they were persecuted by Saul, remember this? They scattered and they took the gospel with them to their new homes. Or think about the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. How many times people tried to murder him and he had to like get lowered down in a basket at night to, to flee to the next town. Okay, so I don't think this is just something Jesus is telling the 12. I think this is a broad principle that applies to all Christians. Friends, when you face aggressive oppression and opposition from the government maybe, or at school, or at work, or in your social sphere, if you are able to escape that environment of oppression, you should do it. And don't just stay there and take your lumps. Instead, find some new people to bring a witness to Jesus, about Jesus to. But now Jesus says something very interesting in verse 23. He tells the disciples to flee, and then he says this, For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Historically, this verse has caused a ton of controversy. And the reason is, quite often this phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, is interpreted to mean the second coming of Jesus at the end of history. But if we read this verse in this way, we're going to get ourselves pretty confused. Because we're going to wonder how Jesus could say all the towns of Israel would not be reached by the gospel before the end of history 2,000 years later. Because surely the gospel was taken to all the towns of Israel within the first few decades of Christian history, right? And because of that line of thinking, many famous writers like Albert Schweitzer and Bertrand Russell latched onto this verse and claimed that this verse showed that Jesus gave a false prophecy. That Jesus thought he was going to return very quickly and it didn't happen. And on that basis, then we should conclude that Jesus is not God. Now, certainly this is a very difficult verse. But I think there are a number of ways we can understand this without thinking it's a false prophecy. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to share with you the one reading that I think makes the most sense here. In this interpretation, the coming of the Son of Man does not refer to Jesus' return at the end of history. Instead, based on the entire context of chapter 10, I think what's happening is this. Jesus is sending the disciples out to the towns of Galilee, but fairly soon Jesus will come along after them and regather them, and then they will resume their ministry together. And so I think that is the coming of the Son of Man that's discussed here. Jesus is going to come out in a few weeks and get all the 12 back together, and they'll resume their ministry. And because Jesus is going to soon regather the disciples when he sends them out, they're not to stay at any one town too long, especially if that place has decided to reject their message. So if they face opposition, they'd better go on to the next town to get the biggest possible impact for the gospel before Jesus catches up to them and regathers them. Now, that's not the only viable interpretation of this verse, but I think that's the one that makes the best sense of the context of this sentence and this chapter. But while fleeing is to be our normal response to persecution, the sad truth is that option is not always available to God's people. And if we cannot flee, if we find ourselves beset by inescapable opposition, then the second instruction Jesus gives us 
is found in verse 22. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. If we cannot run, we must endure. And that means we cannot compromise with our persecutors to save our own skin. We must stand firm in our proclamation of Jesus and in obedience to him. And for how long? To the end. To the end of the persecution or even to the end of our earthly lives. We must remain faithful to Christ. The idea of strategic capitulation is not available to us. We don't get to publicly renounce Jesus to save our lives while inwardly saying, I don't mean it, Lord. See, my fingers are crossed. No. This is not a game that Jesus will indulge. And this is not some small sin issue. In fact, what Jesus says is this is a heaven or hell issue. The one who stands firm under persecution, who maintains his faith in Christ to the end, Jesus says here, is the one who is saved, whom God delivers in a final sense. And by implication, the one who fails to endure, who fails to maintain his faith to the end, is not saved. And if you have questions about that, look down at verse 32. Jesus makes this very clear. So, he says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, here Jesus is talking about final judgment, right? And in that moment, that's when we really need Jesus to vouch for us, right? Because none of us can earn our salvation by our works. So to survive the verdict of the Father in the end, we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. We need his death and resurrection to be attributed to our behalf. We need Jesus to say to the Father, this one's mine. But what does Jesus say? The only people who he will vouch for before the Father are those who acknowledge him before men, those who maintain their witness without capitulating. And more than just saying that, Jesus also says here that he will deny those who deny him. Those who do not endure in their witness for Jesus to the end will not receive Jesus' acknowledgement on the day of judgment. That is to say they will be lost because they don't have true faith. Because true faith perseveres to the end. Now this is a doctrine that has been trampled on in the American church for the last two centuries. But friends, it is a biblical doctrine. It is a doctrine that the ancient church acknowledged. And it is a doctrine that the Protestant reformers recognized. In fact, I would tell you that every branch of historic Protestant theology, be it Lutheran or Calvinist or Arminian, all affirm this doctrine. It wasn't until the false teaching of the heretic Charles Finney that swept through the United States in the 19th century that this doctrine was kicked to the curb. And I would say today, if you are not familiar with this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or if you find it troublesome or repugnant, that's probably because at some point in your life, the errors of Finney were taught to you as being true. But friends, what I, I don't want to get into what Finney said. What I want us to see here is just what does the Bible say? And the Bible is very clear that true faith perseveres to the end, and that apostasy, falling away from the faith, is proof positive of lostness. Now, before I go further here, I want to say a few words about apostasy. What is apostasy? It's a concept we find many times, in fact, in the New Testament. And I think there are basically three forms of apostasy. The first is the kind of apostasy we find in our passage, in which people simply renounce the faith, either because they don't want to suffer for Jesus or because they're tired of claiming an association with Jesus that they really don't have. So apostasy can involve an explicit denial of Christ. But second, apostasy also includes situations in which people still claim to be believers, but they have been deceived away from the gospel by believing false teaching. So, 2 Peter 2 says, There will be false teachers among you who bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Okay, so these heretics are apostates. Their false doctrine equals a denial of Christ. And those who wind up following them also wind up basically denying Christ. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5. When he warns people who are deceived by false doctrine, he says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. 
So subscribing to false doctrine that is incompatible with the gospel, let's say you say, well, I'm, I'm going to become a Jehovah's Witness now. Or I've decided I no longer believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, but I'm still a Christian. The New Testament would say, no, actually, you're not. But third, someone can commit moral apostasy, embracing a lifestyle that is diametrically opposed to the gospel, which says my sin is right and Jesus is wrong. Here's what Paul says about that in Titus 1. He says they profess to know God, so they're claiming a profession of faith, but they deny him by their works. So there are people who claim to be Christians, but whose lives deny Jesus. Their lifestyles have made them apostate. And here, friends, we're not talking about believers who commit periodic sin. We're not talking about believers who backslide over a season of their lives, but who, when they're confronted about it, say, yes, yes, you're right, I've sinned. Here we are talking about people who have decided, I like my lifestyle of wickedness, and I don't think Jesus has a problem with it. This is the situation Paul talks about in Galatians 5, in 1 Corinthians 6, when he says things like, do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Their profession of faith is shown to be false by their lifestyle. So I think these are the three categories that together constitute apostasy. And again, this is evidence of lostness because true faith perseveres to the end. And let me now prove that biblically. And then I'll talk about some objections that you might be thinking of. First, several passages clearly point to the truth that the saved will persevere to the end. Here are four examples. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.5, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And I think the, the clearest text on this is Hebrews 3.14. Listen to this if you have doubts about this. He says, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's explicit, friends. There's no wiggle room there. Tragically, it's also clear that those who are apostate are lost. Listen to, again, four texts. Romans 11.22, Paul says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in this kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. This is a passage we all probably know fairly well. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hebrews 10.39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Or again, here's, I think, another very clear text, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So, true faith perseveres, and apostasy is absolute evidence of lostness. And there are, I, I really don't think there are any biblical texts to the contrary of what I've just said. Now, why is this doctrine controversial in our own time? First, because people mistakenly think this doctrine denies eternal security, but it does not. In fact, this doctrine is the only way to recognize the eternal security passages or to reconcile the eternal security passages to the warning passages about apostasy. If you don't wind up holding to this, what you wind up saying is there are passages in the Bible that don't mean what they say. Okay, and that's a terrible hermeneutic. God means what he says everywhere. Now, when I say that apostate people are lost, I want you to understand I am not saying that apostate people lose their salvation. You can't lose your salvation. I'm saying they never had salvation to begin with. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, they believed in vain. That is to say, they had something that looked like belief, but 
wasn't. It looked like saving faith, but it was empty. It, didn't, it, it wasn't real. And we know it wasn't real because it didn't endure. Second, people object to this doctrine because they think it becomes salvation by works. They'll say, well, we save ourselves by enduring. That's what you're arguing. But that's not at all what I'm saying. Again, listen to some of the phrases I read a minute ago. He will sustain you to the end. He will bring it to completion, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Friends, if we endure to the end, it's not because of our own power or will. It's because, as Jude says in his book, God is able to keep you from stumbling. Our perseverance is a result of the gracious, saving power of God. It's not some natural effort generated by the believer. And it's certainly not a merit-generating effort that would earn our salvation. Third, people object to this doctrine because they think it negates the idea that they can have assurance of their faith. They think, well, if it's possible that I could fall away someday and that would show my salvation was never genuine, maybe I cannot have assurance of my salvation until the last possible instant of my life. But that's not true either, because 1 John gives us a number of tests that let us know whether we're in the faith or not that we can examine ourselves by. Like, what's my posture towards God's word? Do I care about obedience? Do I love my fellow believers? Do I hold to true doctrine? And tests like these work together with perseverance to help us have a biblical assurance of salvation. But fourth, I think the real reason that people object to this doctrine is that we just don't have theological clarity on what it means to be saved anymore in much of the American church. There's this idea today that every profession of faith is valid. That Every time somebody prays the sinner's prayer, that means they were truly converted and that eternal security attached to them, and no matter what that person's life actually shows later. And this whole framework, which is found nowhere in the Bible, has taken on a life of its own and has been allowed to take such root in our minds that I think for many of us it has numbed us to reading what the scripture actually has to say about the true Christian life, or what the scripture actually has to say about the danger of apostasy. Friends, not every profession of faith is legitimate. And the Bible's clear, true faith will generate evidence in someone's life. And one of the clearest evidence of true faith is perseverance, and one of the clearest evidences of false faith is apostasy. Now, I take no joy in saying these things to you. I know that this is a painful truth for many of us today. I had conversations with a ton of you guys on this subject. And I know many of us really resist this doctrine because we have had experiences that are tragically common within the American church today and which are common even within our own little church here. We have loved ones who at a young age made a profession of faith and who later fell away. And we desperately hope that their former profession of faith was genuine because when you look at their life today, we say, you just seem so distant from the Lord. And so we comfort ourselves by saying, well, whatever that profession was that they made years ago, that was genuine no matter what the Bible says about everything that's happened in their life since. And then we start to rationalize, well, I don't need to evangelize them because I know they're saved because of something that happened a long time ago. When really the issue, I think, is often we don't want to talk with this loved one about Jesus because we don't want to push them away. And so we, ration we create these rationalizations to avoid doing evangelism for people that God has put close to us in our lives. Friend, if this is where you are today, I have to say to you, with all the love in the world, what you're believing is not biblical, and it's profoundly harmful. It's harmful because it, un it undermines our ability to understand what the Bible says about conversion and the Christian life. It's harmful because it grants us a rationalization to avoid obeying God's call on our lives to evangelize the lost and especially those people that God has seen fit to put us in their orbit to be the people evangelizing. And it's harmful because it doesn't comport with the Bible. And we must believe what's true. Friends, the Bible's clear. True faith perseveres. And so we are commanded to endure if we belong to Christ. We are commanded. Should persecution come? Should they say, we're going to torture you? Should they say, we're going to kill you? Renounce Jesus, you say... I'm going to stand firm and endure. That's what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus says, flee if you can, but if you can't, endure. Now Jesus gives a third instruction about persecution. Look at verse 19. 
He says, if you are put on trial for your faith before governing officials, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. In the first century, if you were put on trial, you had no constitutional rights to an attorney or against self-incrimination. You had to speak on your own behalf. And think about the 12. And these are like professional fishermen. They're not gifted orators, right? And so it would be really scary for them. If I get arrested and put on trial, what am I going to say? My life's going to be on the line. And Jesus says, you don't have to worry about it. Because what you are to say will be given to you in that hour by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, this promise is often misapplied today, quite often by lazy preachers who don't want to prepare sermons or lazy Christians who don't want to obey 1 Peter 3, which says always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. And so they say, well, the Spirit will spontaneously give me the words. That is not what Jesus is promising here. Jesus is saying if you are put on trial for your life, the Spirit will help you speak and bear witness. Right, just like Paul did in the final chapters of the book of Acts when the Romans put him on trial. And I'm sure that this has happened many times over the last two millennia. The Holy Spirit has empowered believers to give courageous testimony when they have endured persecution. And friends, what, what we need to know on this one is this. Should we encounter opposition, if we belong to Jesus, we don't need to worry how we will conduct ourselves when things get tough because his Spirit will work through us to bear witness, and to accomplish his good purposes in the midst of that terrible situation. Okay, so that's our second point, how we should respond to persecution. Points three and four are, are good, a good bit quicker. So uh, we come now to our third point, and here we see who we should fear when times of danger come upon us. Uh, look at, down at verse 26, Jesus says, So have no fear of them, persecutors, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus says three times here, don't be afraid of being persecuted. Now, that sounds easier said than done, right? I mean, we can say that now, but if somebody comes at us with a knife and says, well, do you believe in Jesus? Like, whoa, you know, what are we going to do then? It sounds terrifying, but Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why not? Again, Jesus gives us three reasons. First, we don't need to fear because the persecutors can't win. That's what verses 26 and 27 mean. When he talks about secret things being exposed. What are these secret things? Well, Jesus says they're the things that Jesus has told the disciples in private. His teaching. Right? That's what the world wants to suppress, right? Suppress the teaching about Jesus. Don't proclaim the gospel. Don't talk about Jesus. But Jesus says, though they may try to silence you, they will fail. Because Jesus' disciples then and now openly, faithfully proclaim the gospel. And by so doing, God will see to it, everything that needs to be proclaimed will be proclaimed in this world. The gospel will not be suppressed. The world will not be uh, with an excuse. They can't win. Second, we don't need to be afraid in the face of persecution. Because our persecutors cannot truly kill us. In verse 28, Jesus says, yes, they may kill your bodies, but they can't kill your souls. So they can't truly kill us. Because if you know Christ, you have entrusted yourself to the one that Revelation 1 says is, has died and is alive forevermore and who has the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has total authority over life and death. And Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus shares resurrection life with all who believe in him. So what if our persecutors kill us? Jesus will raise us to life again in a better body, in a better world, in unending bliss. So we can say with uh, the psalmist in Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? But instead of fearing people, what Jesus tells us here is instead we must fear God, who's not just able to kill the body, but to subject the body and the soul to eternal death in hell. 
As we heard last week from Marv in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. God is awesome and fearsome. And if we're worried about who to offend, God had better be at the top of our list. Because he is able to do infinitely more against those who transgress against him than even the most powerful person in this world is. So if you're going to fear anybody, you better fear God and obey him. But even as we fear God, there's a third truth Jesus tells us here, which is immensely comforting. Which is that we don't need to be afraid because the God that we must fear is also the God who kindly and sovereignly cares for his people. And Jesus made this point back in chapter 6. When he said, God clothes the grass with flowers, will he not clothe his people? God feeds the birds, will he not feed us? And now again, Jesus points to birds. Little sparrows who were bought and sold for very little money in the ancient world. And yet Jesus says God exerts total authority over something as seemingly insignificant as the life of a sparrow. He says a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from God outside of his will or his sovereign control. And Jesus' point is this. If God exercises control over circumstances that small, over creatures that insignificant, what degree of control does God have over people? Over his own people who have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, who God sent his son to redeem at the cost of his own life. Jesus says God is so intimately involved with your life and mine, friends, he has counted the number of hairs on our head. And if God cares about us to that degree, can we not trust him with whatever we encounter? Hebrews 13 says, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Psalm 23 says, even if we are in the valley of the shadow of death, we don't need to fear for he is with us. And so friends, in times of trouble, we're not alone, we're not forsaken, we're not abandoned. We have a father who is in control and who for some reason has allowed us to face trouble, which he will work out in our lives to make us more like Christ and which will result in his eternal glory. So friends, we can trust him. We don't need to be afraid. Jesus said back in chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the material things we need will be added to us. And friends, if we seek God's kingdom and righteousness by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, can we not expect that in the day of evil, in the day of opposition, God will see that whatever we need will come to us, whatever strength, whatever courage, whatever friends, whatever words. Can we not trust that God's good purposes will be accomplished, that by our living or dying, the gospel will be proclaimed and Jesus will be glorified? Can we not trust that he will make good on his word to raise us to eternal life? And so we don't need to be afraid of those who would persecute us. Instead, we need to fear and trust our Heavenly Father. We come now to our last point in which we see what priorities we must adopt that will see us through danger. Persecution will come from all quarters, from governments and religious elites. Verses 34 to 36, Jesus says it will even come from within our own family. But now Jesus tells his disciples, and by extension us, how we endure opposition. And the answer is, adopt a set of priorities. Priorities that value Jesus above everything else in this life. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Really under important that we understand this. Number one, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't love our family members. Of course we should deeply and profoundly love and serve our spouses and our children and our parents and our extended family. God has given us our family members as a good gift. We must love them well. But Jesus has told us in this chapter, there will be times that the gospel causes divisions in families. When family members become our enemies because of our allegiance to Christ. And when that happens... When family members say, choose between me and Jesus, that we've got to choose Jesus. Because Jesus has a right and a claim to a superior love and allegiance than the love and allegiance we give to anybody else, including our family members. They say, why? Because he is the one to whom the eternal plan and purpose of the Father points. Because he is the one 
by whom and for whom everything that's ever existed exists. Because he is the one who will still shine brightly when the last star fades. Jesus is the everlasting Lord, and he has the right to our unqualified loyalty. And Jesus says, if we decide that our family bonds are more important than obeying him, we are not worthy of him. You say, what's that mean? Well, in one sense, nobody can ever be worthy of Jesus, right? But this word worthy was used back in verse 11 of this chapter to speak of people who rightly respond to the gospel preaching of the disciples, who receive eternal blessings from Jesus for rightly responding to him in faith. And so here Jesus tells us that a wrong response to him, a response that rejects him, which he will in no way bless, is a response that says, well, Jesus, I'd like some fire insurance from you, but I've got to keep my family happy, so I just can't obey you on that one. Jesus demands primacy over our families. More than that, look at verse 38. Jesus says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We talk so casually these days about having a cross to bear, right? But in the first century, bearing your cross meant to walk to the, pain, the place of execution, a walk of pain and scorn. And Jesus says, that's where I'm going. And he expects we will follow him on a very hard path that entails social rejection and discomfort and persecution and ultimately of loss. Are we willing to walk this path of suffering with Jesus or is it just too inconvenient? Are we just too busy? Are we just too in love with the luxuries of this world or the approval of this world? Make no mistake, if we claim to belong to Jesus, we've got to understand that means we will walk this road of hardship following Jesus' own example. And Jesus says we've got to be willing to walk this hard path with him. We're not worthy of him. There is no option of receiving the benefits of Jesus without walking the hard path of dying to self, of sanctification, enduring hardship from this scornful world. Friends, either we follow Jesus despite the personal cost, or we have rejected him. It's as simple as that. Lastly, look at verse 39. Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In the end, we all have a choice. Are we going to live for ourselves, or are we going to pursue uh, the good life of American society, or are we going to live for Jesus? You know, a lot of us, I think, view Christianity as something we do. You know, like, I work, and I have fun, and I spend time with my family. And I'm a Christian, it's a part of my life. But in the end, it's my life, it's about me. And I'm in this to have the best life I can and get the most money and have the most toys and enjoy the most leisure. And Jesus, you get some of my time, some of my worship, some of my attention. You get to live in this nice little corner that I furnished for you in my life. But please don't leave it. That's where you go. Because in the end, my life's all about me. I think many people think about Christianity like that today. Maybe that's how we think. But it's not how Jesus thinks. Because Jesus says, if you live your life for your own life's sake, if it's all about pursuing the good life, he says you're going to lose everything. Because that's not the path of picking up your cross and following Jesus. That's not the path that leads to life. This is the broad road that leads to destruction. Because, friends, Jesus demands all. He wants to reign over our lives. He wants us to give our lives to him. He wants us to live our lives for him. To the point that if the world says, choose between Jesus or dying, we say, I'm going to die for the one who died for me. I pray that choice is never required of any of us. But friends, the path that results in true life is the hard road of self-denial, sanctification, and enduring persecution. And Jesus wants all of us on that road, and he will not settle for less. Now, maybe today we hear this and we think, man, I, I fall so short of what Jesus wants for me, how much I live for myself, and how little I regard Jesus on a daily basis. And if that's where you are this morning, take an inventory. And I think it starts with this. What is Jesus worth to you? What is his value? Do you just see him as a fire insurance salesman? 
Do you see him as a genie? Maybe some of us see him as a fearsome, distant tyrant. Instead, friends, I hope that you see Jesus deserves our love and our allegiance because of his preeminence over all things and his self-sacrificing love for us. Because, friend, in the end, if you want to have peace and joy and hope, it's in Jesus alone. It's, it's Jesus that we need to tune our affections to. And in the end, Jesus cares for us like no one else ever can or will. What is Jesus worth to you? And where have you and I resisted his call to die to self and to take up our cross and walk the hard road? And friends, if we know the answer to that immediately, then we know what we need to do to repent and respond to this passage. We need to do whatever Jesus is calling us to do. And if we think, I don't know if I can do that, take heart. None of us can do this in our own strength, right? That's why the Spirit works in us, to transform us and to make us more like Christ, who was willing to walk this hard road in obedience to the Father because of his great love for us. So friends, I hope we see the path of following Jesus as a hard road that demands our loyalty. I hope that we see it demands our obedience and demands that we endure the most difficult dangers and endure the most painful betrayals and make the hardest choices. But friends, this is the road that leads to life. Because the only way we ever wind up on the hard road is because we had true faith. Why else would we ever volunteer to go on this kind of a road, right? Only faith would lead us to this kind of obedience. And this is the road Jesus set his disciples upon. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to preach and teach in their cities. And Jesus sends the disciples out now. And while they're gone, he continues his ministry in Galilee. And friends, just as Jesus sent his disciples out back then, if we belong to him today, he sends us out too. And my prayer this morning is that we've learned how we are to survive when we follow Jesus on the road to hardship. We've got to be wise. We've got to be innocent. We've got to be alert. We've got to flee danger when we can. And when we can't, we've got to endure to the end. We must not fear people, but we must fear and trust our Heavenly Father who meets our needs. And in the end, we must prioritize Jesus above all else.